uh, buckle up for this, Phil's wife, okay, her brother, his wife, her brother, is my wife's sister's husband. So I'm trying to figure out how we haven't ended up at Thanksgiving together, Ben. It doesn't make sense. Well, I'll see you at Phil's house for Christmas. Yeah. Uh, hey, as we, as we get started here, I'm actually going to invite those who are going to pass out the communion elements to come and grab those now. Um, the way that we do this, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, we invite you to take part in this with us. You don't have to be a member of this church. If you've not been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, it's okay. You can let, let the tray go by. It doesn't need to be weird by any means. Um, take a little two stack of, of cups, set those on the ground. We're going to get to those later. Just make sure you put them in a place where you're not going to kick them over. And we will, we will take communion together a little later in our service. Uh, we're entering into what is a new sort of like narrative chunk in Genesis. Chapters 18 and 19 fit together. We're going to work with the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 18. So if you have a Bible and you want to open up to there, you can. Genesis 18, 1 through 15 function as a sort of story inside a larger story that's taking place in Genesis 18 and 19. Malcolm Gladwell, author, um, kind of researcher, speaker, he says that the difference between a story and an anecdote is that an anecdote conforms to your expectations while a story does not. A story betrays your expectation and then spends the rest of the time either helping you understand why your expectation was betrayed or resolving the feeling of tension as a result of that. So a story isn't interesting until something unexpected happens. Romeo and Juliet, two families, they don't get along. It just kind of is what it is until you find out that one member from one family falls in love with another member from another family, and now your expectations have been betrayed, and we need to resolve that. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, some children get sent out of London in the middle of World War II so that they can be safe despite the bombings that are taking place there. They arrive at this really old house kind of out in the country. It's raining. They're trying to explore the house and get familiar with their surroundings. One of the girls, Lucy, goes into a room that's mostly empty, but it's got a cupboard. For whatever reason, she decides, I'm going to go into the cupboard. And when she goes into the cupboard, she comes out the other side in this incredible world, Narnia. Now my expectations have been betrayed. Please explain to me what is happening here. That's a, that's a story. That's where a story takes off. The question this morning, as we read 18, 1 through 15, is when does the unexpected thing happen? Specifically, when would an ancient Israelite person say that the unexpected thing happened in these 15 verses? Kind of ask yourself that question. Think about that while we read this. If you've got to open in front of you, this is Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. It says this, The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed down to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. 
So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried and prepared it. Then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is it anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, would your spirit Speak to our hearts this morning. Comfort us, challenge us, convict us. God, according to the truth of who you are, what you've done for us in Christ, would your spirit move us into deeper places of trust, move us into deeper places of repentance, confront the places within our hearts where despite our belief, maybe there's still a little unbelief. Would you do that for your glory, for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's how we're going to do this. We need to understand a little bit of something about ancient Near Eastern hospitality. I promise I will do that quickly. We need to understand that because understanding the actions of Abraham, Sarah, and their visitors only makes sense within that historical context. So once we do that, we'll get to the high point of the story, which is the rhetorical question, is anything impossible for the Lord? See that in its context, and then take a step back and give ourselves some applications by way of just three simple reminders. We're going to start at the end, which is the answer to the question, is anything impossible For the Lord, that answer is nothing is impossible for God Almighty. Now let's work our way there. Verse number one, the Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. Moses, who is the author of Genesis, lets you know right away what's happening in the account. The Lord, in your translation, that ought to be capital L, and then smaller but still capitalized O-R-D. Your Old Testament does that anytime the word Yahweh is used. In this instance, that's not the word used there. The word is Adonai. And yet, Moses is letting you know this is God. If you just scan your way down the rest of your text, you will notice in some other places that the word Lord is used again. Depending on your translation, that's either lowercase L-O-R-D or it's a capital L and then a lowercase O-R-D. That's also the word Adonai. Your translator is trying to help you see one of these is God. Other times that the word Lord is being used, it's being used in the sense of like master or used as a sign of respect or something like that. So we're told the Lord 
appears to Abraham in the middle of the day while he's near his tent resting in the shade of a tree. That was a normal thing that people did then when it got really hot in the middle of the day, you took a break from your work, you went back home, you either took a nap or you just rested for a little while. I have been petitioning for that for years now. It would seem as though in the text, Abraham just sort of sees these three men standing at a distance in the middle of that rest period. And it is impossible to say with certainty. But the immediate question that jumps to my mind is, does Abraham know that one of these three individuals is the Lord? Moses is letting us know that. But in the moment, does Abraham know that that's the case? Hebrews 13 appears to allude to this whole account, Genesis 18 and 19, when it says that we're to be hospitable to one another because in showing love to each other, some have unknowingly hosted or entertained angels. That would make it seem as though Abraham here in Genesis 18 and Lot in Genesis 19 don't know who these visitors are. And yet some of Abraham's actions make it seem like maybe he does know. For instance, he runs out there and the first thing he does when he greets them is that he bows to the ground. So in some sense, it seems like Abraham recognizes there's something special about these individuals. In another sense, it's maybe not totally accurate to jump all the way to the assumption that he knows that this is God that's with him. What happens next is that Abraham extends normative, ancient Near Eastern hospitality to these individuals. He gets up and he goes out to greet them as they're waiting to be seen. Even that is standard practice. Everyone in this little hospitality song and dance is navigating the possibility that the other party is a threat. So if you're the stranger, the sojourner, you would stand at a distance out in the open so that the host or the tent owner, homeowner, could see you and know that you're not up to no good. You're not lurking in the shadows waiting to ambush them or take advantage of them or something like that. You're standing out in the open making yourself somewhat vulnerable. Then the host would come out and engage with you as a way of saying the same thing. I'm not looking to take advantage of you. Here I am. And then there's an invitation to serve that person. He greets them, invites them to stay, offers what would be the normal sort of meal, if you will. Water that they could both drink and wash their feet with, a little bit of bread to eat to strengthen them for the rest of their journey, and then just a place to sit down and eat that in the shade. All of that is standard normative practice in this place at this time. And so while reading the story, an ancient Israelite person is completely unsurprised by what is happening here. It's what happens next that's a little bit attention grabbing. Verse six, Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. That's normal. But then verse seven, Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and honey, or curds and milk, as well as the calf that had been prepared, and he set them before the men. That is not a little bit of bread and some water. He's all of a sudden come out with like a spread that he puts before them to eat. And so an ancient Israelite at this point would at the very least say to themselves, that escalated quickly. But okay, at this point, the visiting men were told, sit down to eat underneath the tree. Abraham stands nearby and serves them. Again, that's all standard practice. And then in verse nine, Romeo falls in love with Juliet. 
Lucy walks into the wardrobe, through the wardrobe, and into Narnia. The guests, who would not normally address, inquire, or even talk about Abraham's wife, ask for her by name. More specifically, by the new divinely given name that she just received. Verse 9, where is your wife, Sarah? Not Sarai, Sarah. An ancient Near Eastern guest does not ask about the host's wife. That is wildly inappropriate. An ancient Near Eastern guest does not ask about the host's wife by her first name. That would be offensive. An ancient Near Eastern guest does not ask about the host's wife by her new divinely given name because that would be impossible. And so at this point, an ancient Near Eastern reader leans forward and says, excuse me, what? Now you have my attention. And the rest of the story, the conversation that plays itself out, is an attempt to resolve your betrayed expectations or to explain why it is that your expectations have been betrayed. There's not necessarily something to learn about God or these covenant promises that we're seeing in the early parts of Genesis or even about Abraham in the first, let's say, eight verses of the account. It's in the recorded dialogue after this question that our attention is supposed to be directed. And that makes intuitive sense to us, even as modern readers. Why? Because the high point of the story is the question, is anything impossible for the Lord? So our attention is already directed down there. But the real sort of power in all of that comes from understanding the twist, which is in verse 9. What happens from there? Abraham answers, and he says, well, she's there in the tent. And then the Lord, Moses again tells us that, capital L, lowercase yet capitalized O-R-D, the Lord reiterates to Abraham, a year from now, I will return and you will have a son. Sarah hears that from inside the tent and we're told that she laughs. The CSB says that both her and Abraham are old. In fact, it says that Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. If you just took that in the Hebrew and sort of tried to transliterate it as directly as you could into English, it says that she was beyond the way of womanhood, which means that she was past menopause. You want to talk about betraying your expectations? You didn't expect to hear that this morning. (laughs) Sarah is beyond menopause. And so she says, I cannot have a child. It is physically, biologically not possible for my husband and I to conceive of a child. And so she laughs to herself, right? She doesn't say that out loud. After I'm beyond menopause, my husband, who's even older, can this really happen for us? She says that in her head. And the stranger outside says, verse 13, why did Sarah laugh? To which Abraham would have spun around and said, I did not hear anything. What do you mean, why did she laugh? Can I really have a baby when I'm old? Verse 14, is anything impossible for the Lord? Then he reiterates the promise once again. At the appointed time, I will come back, and in about a year, she will have a son. And then there's this amazingly delightful little back and forth between God and Sarah. Sarah, from inside the tent, 
I didn't laugh. God, no, you did laugh. It's like siblings here. I didn't do it. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Regardless of what they knew about these three strangers who appeared to them at the beginning of this account, it would appear that a few hours later, Abraham and Sarah, with some degree of awareness, understand that they're in the presence of the divine. He knows Sarah's name that was just given by God. He can read Sarah's heart and mind. He's making statements about the certainty of the future. And yet, inside of even sort of like the bigness and the grandness of that, there's this beautiful familiarity. Abraham dines with God. And think about that. No one else in the Old Testament is watching God eat. Whatever form it is that the Lord has appeared to Abraham here, is this a pre-incarnate arrival of Jesus? Like, is this a Christophany? Is this happening in some other form? Whatever the case might be, Abraham stands off to the side and observes God eat. That's incredibly intimate in this culture. God shows up, presumably, in order to provide Sarah with the same kind of assurance about these covenant promises that Abraham has received. I mean, she appears to be a significant reason for the visit. Where's your wife, Sarah? Like, let's, let's get to what we're doing here. And then God and Sarah have this, like, friendly, almost sibling-like back and forth. And so the question is, why eight verses about the hospitality? I don't want to be overly dogmatic. I don't want to be unnecessarily dismissive. But that chunk about the hospitality is certainly going to provide both some context and some contrast for what happens when these visitors go into Sodom and Gomorrah and interact with Lot in chapter 19. But I also think that chunk is supposed to highlight the unexpected and yet beautiful nature of God's visit to Abraham and Sarah. He is present to assure Sarah of the certainty of a child. Has Abraham told her about the interaction that he had with God not long ago, back recorded for us in chapter 17? It's gotta be inside of a month's worth of time because God in chapter 17 and the the appearance of the Lord here in chapter 18 are both saying a year from now. So we've gotta be pretty close together. Maybe he has told her. Maybe he hasn't told her, which wouldn't be entirely impossible. I can't tell you the number of times I find out from someone on our staff via text or via an email, a little update to our staff that so-and-so is pregnant. And then like three months later, that person comes into service and my wife sees them and she says, did you know so-and-so was pregnant? And I say, in fact, I did know that months ago. Did I not tell you that? I should have told you that, right? But it's also possible that despite Abraham having told her that she's struggling to believe given the reality of their circumstances. That'd be understandable. Either way, God comes personally to offer her the same assurance that Abraham has gotten. And the crux of that conversation is verse 14. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Let's do some applying of that by way of three reminders. Reminder number one, no earthly problem will prohibit God from fulfilling his biblical promise to create a global people. 
We don't need to be overly restrictive with the bigness and the boldness of the Lord's rhetorical question here, but I do think it's always right to start our application with the most direct biblical context. In this case, God is reiterating for the third or fourth time to Abraham, but for the first time directly to Sarah, that the fulfillment of his promise that they will have a child is possible. That the fulfillment of his promise that he will create a global people from Abraham, that that is possible. So Sarah says to herself, well, Abraham, he's older than dirt, and I'm beyond the biological capacity for childbirth, to which the Lord replies, what's your point? I need not be confined by your perceptions of what is and is not possible. Trust me when I say that your human limitations are no barrier to my eternal plans and infinite power. Sarah, is anything impossible for the Lord? That theme plays itself out throughout scripture. In fact, twice in the gospels, there are direct statements about it. In an inverted sort of situation, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Now she's not beyond the childbearing age. She hasn't yet engaged in the necessary processes by which you conceive a child. Yes. In that conversation, when Mary says, hold up, this is not physically possible, Gabriel replies, for nothing will be impossible with God. What's Gabriel's response? So what's your point? God need not be confined by your perceptions of what is and is not possible. Trust me when I say to you that your human limitations are no barrier to his uh, eternal plans and infinite power for nothing will be impossible with God. He has made a promise of a global people in covenant relationship with him through this child of promise and he's gonna bring that child through you, Mary. Nothing will stop it. The second instance involves John the Baptist. He's out in the wilderness calling for people to repent because the king and the kingdom have drawn near and as he's preaching that message in the wilderness ahead of Jesus's public ministry, he encounters a group of religious leaders. These folks live as though the fact that they're just born Israelite, they're Jewish, and they do a good job following the law means that they will be saved. Why are you telling me I need to repent? I'm Jewish. We follow the law. To which John the Baptist replies, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these rocks. Nothing is impossible. No earthly prom problem will prohibit God from fulfilling his biblical promise to create a global people. So what does that mean for us? Well, I would ask you some questions. Can your child who has wandered away from the faith, maybe for decades, be saved? Is anything impossible for the Lord? Can God bring revival to our increasingly secular and post-Christian nation and world? I don't know, is anything impossible for the Lord? Can the tide shift to a more healthy and beautiful view of the church and the gospel in our nation? Is anything impossible for the Lord? Can God bring the power of the gospel to that people group on the other side of the world who has never been reached and has no access to it and doesn't even have scripture in their language? Is anything impossible for the Lord? Older generations... As you look at younger generations, both 
inside of our church and just in our world. And you observe anecdotally what sociologists and researchers are finding statistically, which is that we are in the midst of the largest religious shift in American history. And that shift is away from church and the gospel, not toward it. You look at that and you say, oh, these millennials and these Gen Zers, like, could anything ever possibly get them on track? To which I would look back at you and say, is anything impossible for the Lord? Our salvific imagination, for lack of a better phrase, is simply too stunted in this realm. I honestly think that's a significant part of what makes us hesitant to share our faith. We look at a situation and we say, God could not possibly, to which he would look back at you and say, is anything impossible for me? I could raise up covenant people from these rocks right here, and I will. Is anything impossible for the Lord? We lament over what we see as earthly problems when the fact of the matter has never been one of earthly power. It's always been about him and his eternal promises and his infinite power, not our human cunning or our human sharing capability. And so we get real quiet. Why? Because we can't fathom a situation in which God could overturn the thing that we're looking at. And he looks down and he says, it was never about you overturning it. It's always been about me. And is anything impossible? for the Lord. Let's go a step further. Reminder number two, never lose the wonder of friendship with God brought about by covenant righteousness. What's the outcome or one of the gifts of being among God's global people? Well, as we've seen in Genesis, one of those gifts is that by God's grace, we're credited a righteousness that is not ours. It's credited to us on the basis of Jesus's righteousness. And when that happens, we're ushered into a relationship with God Almighty. And it is not one where he is like a begrudging, sort of resigned, I guess I have to sort of relationship with his people. It is genuine friendship. Think about that. If you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you have friendship with the Almighty God of the universe. We're swept into that. One of the greatest gifts of the covenant is friendship with God. That's what Abraham has. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament confirm that. In Isaiah 41 verse eight, God is describing his people. And he says, you Israel, my servant, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. Straight from the mouth of God. James chapter two picks that up in the New Testament. Scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Genesis 18 in a narrative form is attesting to that. Part of ancient Near Eastern hospitality was that it reduced the chance of threat by turning strangers into friends. You brought them near, served them, ate a meal with them, had conversation with them. And who did Abraham just dine with? God, his friend. That's powerful in and of itself. But 
think about the situation. God, out of no compulsion from anyone else, comes to Abraham and Sarah for the expressed purpose of kindly and graciously assuring Sarah of his promises. God, under no compulsion, talks to Sarah with striking familiarity. God, under no compulsion, in verse 17, is going to decide to share with Abraham the judgment that's coming to Sodom and Gomorrah, and then God, under no compulsion from anybody else, is going to allow Abraham to speak into those plans. What? He's friends with God. Brother or sister in Christ, you have friendship with God. Not in a begrudging, resigned, I guess I have to sort of relationship. God does not look down at you and think to himself, ah, it's Steve again. Ah, and he's asking about the same thing for the thousandth time. He doesn't think to himself, ah, Jennifer gets this wrong every single time, and I'm tired of it. Jordan, to save his life, could not be obedient to the thing that I'm asking. No, he looks down on you and he says, Steve or Jason or Jennifer or Jordan or Lauren or Phil, you are my friend. And on the basis of covenant righteousness given to you by the work of Jesus Christ, I will not ever turn my back on that. A friend who's closer than a brother, that's what you have, genuine friendship. And so, is it any surprise? Grab your elements that the night before Jesus is betrayed, he would sit down with his disciples and do what? Serve them a meal, have conversation with them, wash their feet, share with them one more time. These are the things that are about to happen. This is what I'm going to do on your behalf. I mean, it's beautiful. Is it any wonder then that both Jesus in his own words and the book of Revelation point itself forward to what? Jesus says, I will not take this meal again until I do so with you in the kingdom of God. Revelation would offer this picture of our intimate relationship with the lamb, Jesus, as what? One where we all sit down at a table and share a meal. When sin has been eradicated, when the sun has come back and swept his global people up into his presence, how are we going to celebrate? With the intimate closeness of a meal as friends of one another, but most importantly, as friends of the lamb, Jesus. You have genuine friendship with God. Never forget that. Don't ever lose the wonder of that. And so we take communion as both a reminder of gratitude backward, that our covenant righteousness was bought by the blood of Jesus and his body given for us on the cross, but also an expectant look forward that one day we will share friendship with him in a completely unhindered way as we sit down to dine together. Brothers and sisters, you got friendship with God. He bought it for you with a body given to you. Eat in remembrance of him. He bought it for you with blood that washes away your sin. Drink in remembrance of him. You've got a friendship that he is not ever going to turn aside from. We should never lose the wonder of that. And then finally, a third reminder 
we need not relegate this covenant people creating, this friendship creating power of God only to matters of salvation. Because all of the infinite limitless power of God is at work on behalf of his glory and our good. Part of what we have, we have as God's covenant people, part of what Abraham has as the father of God's covenant people is all the power of God working on behalf of both God's promises and Abraham's good or our good. Remember, part of the promise is that God is going to bless Abraham and that through Abraham, he's going to bless not just his future covenant people, but all the nations of the earth. All of his power at work in and through his people for his glory and for their good. Job and the Psalms and even the narrative opening of the book of Genesis talk about the unthinkable, limitless power of God. In fact, in the book of Job, there's this like extended reflection upon God as creator. In the end of that reflection in Job 26 is that these are but the fringes or the outermost parts of the power of God. Like you look at the cosmos around you and that's just like the distant outer reach of what this God is capable of. As his people, all of that power is being marshaled for the fulfillment of his purposes through his people and for the very good of us as his people. Ephesians says that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all we could ask or imagine. And we think to ourselves, Okay, but can he really? Because the challenge in this is that we often have a hard time believing the goodness of God outside of the granting of our desires. I'm gonna say that again. It's worth writing down. We often have a hard time believing the goodness of God outside of the granting of our desires. Our hearts and our minds often act as though God's goodness is bound up in the delivering of our desires or our expectations? Well, I would ask you some questions. Hasn't he already turned your cold and dead heart back to himself? What could be more difficult than that? You might think to yourself, I don't know, it didn't really seem all that hard. I was a pretty good person. To which I would say, you must not understand your sin and his holiness. Ezekiel says that what God is able to do is take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. Is anything impossible for the Lord? And so work from there. Can he actually bring you freedom from a besetting sin that has plagued your life for decades? Is anything impossible for the Lord? Can he bring reconciliation into a relationship that's been long broken? Well, is anything impossible for the Lord? Can he restore your marriage or bring health back into a broken parent-child relationship? Oh, is anything impossible for the Lord? Can he fulfill the longing inside of you for a spouse or for something else that you feel like is missing from your life? I don't know. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Can he help you see meaning and purpose on the other side of your parenting years or your career life? Is anything impossible for the Lord? The repeated scriptural demonstration is that God's goodness is always tied to the fulfillment of his plans and his promises and the display of his glory. And so, yes, he rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and he does so for the fulfillment of his plans, for the display of his glory and 
for the good of the Israelite people. He raises up judges to save his people from their oppressors all throughout the book of Judges in just these downward cycles of sin and brokenness and darkness. And he raises up those judges for the display of his glory, the fulfillment of his promises, and the good of his people. He brings his people back from exile after their time scattered outside of their promised land. Why does he do that? For the display of his glory, for the fulfillment of his plans and purposes, and for the good of his people. Jesus does miracles, healings throughout the gospels. Why does he do those? For the display of his glory, the fulfillment of his plans and purposes, and the good of people. And yet there's the reality that sometimes it seems as though God is not marshalling all of his power for my good, at least not the good that I want. So the balance here is that our desire for the infinite power of God to move in our lives, it has to be balanced by a deep trust in his goodness to us as a friend. He wants what's best for us. He knows what's best for us. And he is working toward what is best for us. And all of that happens within the larger framework of his accomplishing the global display of his glory in the fulfilling of his covenant plans and promises. And can he do all of that at the same time? Is anything impossible for the Lord? All of his power at work in and through and on behalf of his people because they are his friends. And they are his friends because he has and is and will fulfill his biblical promise to create a global people. Nothing is impossible for God Almighty. He will create a global people. He will relate to that global people as friend. He will marshal all of his infinite, eternal power on behalf of his glory and his people's good. He will come back and eradicate every last drop of sin that exists in the universe. He will sweep all of his people, every tribe, nation, and tongue into his eternal presence where they will dine and commune with him as friends and brother or sister in Christ. Nothing will stand in the way. Not the seeming impossibility of a pregnancy for an old couple and nothing else. Why? Because he need not be confined by our perceptions of what is and is not possible. We can trust him when he says that our human limits are no barrier to his eternal plans and his infinite power. Brother or sister in Christ is anything impossible for the Lord. Say it out loud. No, nothing is impossible for the Lord. So you look around at the brokenness or what you perceive as the drift of our nation away from the Lord, it's not impossible for him to turn that around. You sit in your circumstances and feel like he's not paying attention or he doesn't care, nope, not true. Why? Because you are his friend and it, he cannot, will not, won't turn away from that. Will he marshal all of his power for the fulfillment of his plans and the good of his people? He absolutely will and nothing will stand in the way because nothing is impossible for him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word says that with all of your power, you are working on behalf of the display of your glory, the fulfillment of your plans, and that our good is included inside that and that we can trust your goodness to us as friend 
that you know what's best for us, that you're moving toward what's best for us, even when that maybe goes against or goes slower or works on a different timeline than we would want it to be. God, thank you that you will fulfill your biblical promise to create a global people in that by an unfathomable stroke of your grace, you have chosen to include me, us, inside that global people. God, would we not ever forget that? Would you ever remind us that nothing is impossible for God Almighty? Would we rest in and rejoice in that truth? Pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, let's stand up and sing. Jesus is, he's crucified. Uh, they, they take his body down from the cross. They lay him in the tomb. On the third day, some women come to the tomb. The stone is rolled aside and they are dismayed because his body is not in there. And I will put the uh, angel's words into the Tim Fritzen paraphrase. Why are you surprised? Is anything impossible for the Lord? Nothing, right? Including the fact that he got up out of there and is going ahead of you to the place where he told you he would be. You can go and see him. Amen? Amen. Just before uh, Jesus is taken to be crucified, he prays. All right, I'm sorry, he's talking with his disciples and he says this. He says, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. And he says, you are my friends. I do not call you servant anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I've made known to you everything I have heard from the Father. Brothers and sisters in Christ, go from here and walk in your friendship with God Almighty. Nothing is impossible for him. We love you. Have a great day.